Hi everyone, Brian Beeler with Storage of You. Thanks for joining into the podcast. I've got uh, JV Baker with us today from Scaleflux, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this category of flash SSDs called uh, computational storage. And JB is already gagging in the back of his mouth a little bit. And I only bring it up because that's how a lot of the world knows these drives. But we're going to get into that, talk about the category a little bit, and much, much more. JB, thanks for uh, joining us today. Hey, thanks, thanks for having me. Appreciate the opportunity here, Brian. All right, so let's just start with why do you hate the term computational storage? Uh, before you answer that question, what was is computational storage? And then let's get into your drive a little more. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, comp the Scaleflux was founded back in 2014, and uh, the the mission at the time was was going after computational storage, and uh, the whole concept of computational storage is around improving the data center, the data infrastructure efficiency um, by pushing some of the compute tasks down closer to the storage, closer to the data, and doing work on data closer to where it lives. Um, and take it, so that frees up those valuable uh, CPU cycles, your, your x86 type processors, or now the, the ARM processors, um, freeing up those cycles to run your applications as opposed to doing uh, heavy management tasks that can be very burdensome and add latency to your application, cause more uh, data movement, and uh, just ge generally slow things down and, and reduce your uh, efficiency. So, 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 yeah, so broadly, computational storage was any, and, and tell me if this is too broad, but any SSD that had some other hardware-enabled engine, maybe even hardware is too specific, in the drive, though, to do some other task to ideally offload cycles from your CPU. Yeah, and actually the way that the industry came about talking about computational storage was not just down at the drive level, uh, but we also, through the Storage Networking Industry Association, uh, Skillflux was one of the kind of initial partners or founders in the computational storage working group mm -hmm. um, in SNEA. And as, as the group sat down four-ish years ago, uh, and in that formation, it was, well, there's computational storage drives. There are computational storage processors. There are computational storage arrays. All of these you know, different ways in which you can move these functions away from the CPU and either put them at an array level or put them in a processor that might sit between the CPU and the drives or push things, functions all the way down to the drives. And that's that huge scope led to some of the some of the confusion around how people uh, understand computational storage and the, and the variety of ways in which all of us vendors who were working in it talked about it. Um, and so you know that's you asked early why do I hate the term computational storage? I don't hate the term, but it's it is a term that people get confused about and, and can feel like oh. That's a, it sounds complex. It sounds like something future, future out there. Great benefits if I can slash how much data I have to move across my network by 90% or if I can boost my application performance, um, you know, 2x, 4x, or I can get more data into my drives, uh, but complex. And so that's yeah. where I, I have the, 
little bit of uh, shock around the, just the, the term itself. Well, the more you describe it, the actually the worse I think it gets because <laughs> if you're if you're going to include the entire ecosystem, which includes probably DPUs to some extent, depending on the flavor, uh, GPU accelerated RAID storage, like the grade card, uh, the PlyOps uh, uh, solution, and many others that are that are solving these problems. I mean, we've seen computational storage companies start and fail already. <laughs> I mean, this has been this has been some period of time, but yeah, I, th I think. You know, for this part, for the point of this conversation, we'll focus on the SSD itself um, and 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 what you guys are doing there and, and what that category looks like. But for me, as an industry analyst person, it's really hard not to crack, and I'm very close to the industry in terms of what you guys are doing versus what competitors are doing versus what some of the uh, silicon guys are trying to do to get their accelerators added into these other spots, and it. It's difficult because it creates a lot of confusion, I think. And I mean, you talked about Sunia and the, the working groups are really good at a lot of things. Uh, but sometimes, they, you know, marking communications is not always one of them, unfortunately. Uh, and there's so many constituents in there. I'm sure even in the working group you're part of, there's probably you know, at least a, a couple dozen, well, maybe not a couple dozen, maybe a dozen players. And each one of you has different you know, core core tenants to your products, right? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've actually kind of lost track of how many uh, different companies are participants in the computational storage twig. I, I think we were, it's definitely over 60. Oh, okay. Um, maybe, okay. So a couple yeah, dozen. So there's, and some of them have, you know, some of them don't have necessarily computational storage solutions, but they are uh, travelers and, and care about what goes on there. <laughs> Great. So you've got forty-eight people involved that don't have don't have a product, uh, but have a uh, a selfish motivation one way or the other to to uh, influence the outcome. All right. I don't want to get into the working groups because we'll spend an hour on that and still just be end up pissed off at the end. Um, but your drives, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess so. Where where we have uh, over, you know, where we launched our third generation of product uh, in twenty twenty two. The, we call it the CSD 3000 and the NSD 3000. The first two generations were based on FPGAs. Um, we were using Xilinx FPGAs and uh, that allowed us to do that rapid prototyping and, and put out some computational storage functions uh, and start selling some drives. And as we went through the, the first generation of product, we learned that, hey, it's gotta be simple to use. Um, you, you can't force somebody to do application integration in order to take advantage of the function that you put in the drive. We had a, um, the primary function in that one was a, a compression offload engine, uh, but it was kind of complex to use where you had to push your data down to the, to the drive, it would do the compression offload, and then you send the data back up to the host, and then if you wanted to write it to the drive, well, that was a separate function. So it was kind of a we combined two separate devices into a single form factor, but complex to use. Uh, in the second generation, we retained the compression function and made it transparent. So now there's no uh, replacing of libraries in the host. There's no application integration. You plug the drive in and and it boosts and, and you get the, that transparent compression. Um, but there was still a little bit of complexity in the in the Gen 2 in that we had a scale flux driver 
uh, and instead of just the inbox NVMe driver. And that's one of the big things going to the third gen is now we continue to make it easier to use and can and uh, as a direct substitute for another NVMe drive where we transition to a ScaleFlux custom ASIC. Um, everything is on chip on the drive and we're using the NVMe drivers. So now there's not even any software to install. You plug in our drive, uses the inbox NVMe driver. The compression just happens automatically. Um, and it's all transparent and easy to use. So that was our, as we had worked with customers is like simplicity, 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 because those, those overburdened people in IT ops and hardware infrastructure, they just, they don't have the time uh, to deal with that complexity, um, you know, and things. And then the, on the application side, they don't want to do application customizations. It's, it's never worked. Some yeah. unique drive. Yeah. It's never worked. I mean, we, th that goes back a decade back when Fusion IO was disrupting the enterprise flash space and they had these IO drives that were fantastic and they were really great. And they always said, if we could just get the database guys to, to tune their code for flash instead of hard drives, think about all the, I, this is a story that's as old as time, right? There, there'll be some certain niche applications There'll be some in-memory databases that'll tune for something new like PMEM whenever that rolls around or CXL or whatever the new high-speed hotness is, right? But at a for what you guys want to do for enterprise mass adoption, it's got to be easy. It's got to just work and it's got to be compatible with, with enterprise stuff like VMware, which um, you know I, I know you guys have as well. So I've, the drive for anyone watching on YouTube, it's, it's on my... Uh, desk here, it, it's an SSD, right? And it, outside looking, uh, besides being maybe a little heavier than, than other drives that we have in the lab, I mean, it, it just looks like an NVMe SSD. And I guess that's to your point, what how you want to be characterized and to, to a certain extent why the computational storage halo still technically applies, but maybe not, you know, you don't want to be seen as, as that first. You want to see be seen as an SSD first, which makes sense. That can also handle some of the compression and data reduction in the drive while saving the cycles on the CPU side. And that's always been a challenge, whether it's a storage array or software-defined anything. Uh, you might even remember Permabit was running around with a fiber channel appliance that would do uh, compression because it's expensive, not just cost-wise, but CPU cycles. I don't, even still today, I mean, we've seen solutions that'll have a 20, 30% hit when you enable that. So if you don't have hardware acceleration native to the array or the server or whatever, in whatever form, you're gonna eat a, a substantial performance hit. And when you spend the big money on those CPUs with the big cores and, and, and clocks and everything, uh, that's just a, an unfortunate way to, to allocate your resources. Yeah, and there, I mean, there's a couple aspects of that. The, the compression algorithm, it's a fixed function algorithm, but it's something that, and each one you, you use uh, has a different burden on the CPU, but I'll you just kind of bookend it um, with LZ4, a lightweight compressor. So you're sacrificing how much you compress the data in order to get more throughput out of the, the software through the CPUs. But even that, um, we look at and we've seen that it can take several 
uh, Intel, you know, high-end Pentium cores to achieve the throughput to fill one NVMe SSD. So now, let's say you, you know, if you have a um, 48 core system and you got one drive in there, okay, maybe you can dedicate the four cores to compressing data at line rate to be able to, to fill that drive. But now you put a second drive in and a third drive and a fourth drive. You know, pretty quickly you run out of cores. Sure. Um, it doesn't scale very well. And, and if you wanted to, to actually maximize how much you compress the data, then you'd be using like a gzip. And well, that takes hundreds of cores uh, versus doing that compression. And now you're also talking tens of or hundreds of watts at that point to do that compression versus putting it into a hardware engine that can deliver six gigabytes per second of compression throughput per drive at a cost of, you know, around a watt. So, you know, do you want to spend uh, hundreds of watts and tens of cores and hundreds of thousands of dollars on cores to do compression? Probably not. No, you'd rather do it somewhere else if you can, right? I mean, that's that's your, your big value prop. And so when you think about compression, I guess the way it translates out the other side is this is a, I don't know, I think this one's a 768, an eight terabyte class drive. On average, if you look at what the big array guys quote for enterprise workloads, like a Pure or Dell, I think they're like a four to one guarantee normally on their data reduction rates. So maybe that's about what you see in the enterprise, but I don't, I'm curious, what do you, what do you see in, and when you're going to market, do you talk to your customers like, hey, this is an eight terabyte drive, but based on your workload or workload similar to yours, we think it's more like a 26 terabyte drive or a 38 terabyte drive. Is that how you communicate your, your value? Yeah, there's, there's certainly there's two critical aspects of the value. One is that extended capacity. Um, and we do support going up to, uh, very quick, very soon we'll be supporting up to 24 terabytes of logical capacity. So okay. you can take that eight terabyte uh, up to three exits capacity. Uh, we'll support up to four X capacity on the four terabyte. So, okay. you know, being able to, to store 16 uh, ter terabytes of data on there. And, you know, I you may have noticed me kind of smirk when I hear the the compression guarantees or the data reduction guarantees. All of those guarantees, as I've read the asterisks and the footnotes on them, it, they all say, depends on your workload, uh, assumes that you're not pre-encrypting the data, that you're not pre-compressing the data. Um, so there's a lot of caveats around those. There guarantees. are, yeah. Um, and so... You know, the, the compression that you achieve is definitely going to be uh, impacted by the data that you run and what workload you're running. Um, now, as we've gone out and done testing with customers and they report back what compression ratios they're achieving, we are typically seeing uh, that the compression ratio is greater than two to one for any of the database applications. Um, we do a lot of work with Aerospike, MySQL, RandyB, Postgres. We've done work with customers on Kafka um, and, you know, other, other applications, but typically they're seeing, you know, the reports that we typically hear are 2.5 to one up to five to one with some cases like Redis on flash, it's been nine or 10 to one. Uh, right. and, but if you send me encrypted data, well, I'm not going to compress it. Or if you send me data that's been pre-compressed with LZ4, um, I'm only going to see about an extra 20% compression. But that has a massive improvement on 
the latency consistency and uh, the mixed workload performance that you would see versus uh, using an ordinary drive. Yeah, so I want to go there next. So I think you start out with the the big pitch around the data compression or data reduction and the the capacity benefit, because that's the easiest one, I think, to kind of get people to wrap their heads around. Um, but yeah, you just started to go there. There's a performance benefit too. So talk about that a little bit in terms of Gen 4 headroom and, and what you guys can do there. Yeah, so, um, you know, and, and you guys have done testing with the drives and you see that when the data is compressible, um, which is, as you said, that's kind of the typical enterprise case that we run into, mm -hmm. uh, it allows the drive to have significantly better write performance up front. Uh, and that, there, there's, there's a virtuous cycle that happens in the drive of those hot writes uh, require less data to actually be written to the NAND. And then when we do that, now there's more free space on the NAND. So when the, as the drive starts to fill up, uh, or as an ordinary drive would start to fill up, our drive still stays relatively empty. And you've got higher effective over-provisioning on the back end that reduces the amount of cold writes you have to do. And that helps with uh, achieving your reads and consistent read latency when you've got a mixed read-write workload. Um, I know I, I, I tend to auger down into the details. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. And, you know, we, we saw that in the single drive testing, so it's, it's clearly there. How does that scale then? And then maybe talk a little bit about how your customers have scaled. So I'm sure that in many of your POCs, it's like, here, take a couple drives, you know, do some stuff with them so you can kind of see see this and, and feel this, and that's probably the, the, the starting point for a relationship with the customer. Um, but where do you see them going? Uh, are, they, are they going into software-defined storage solutions? Are they going you know, just as, as addressable drives in VMware or something else? Like what, what kind of use cases are you seeing? Yeah, it's, it's a, it really is a, a broad array. Um, I'd say that the, the leading use case is to put us in a compute node. Um, okay. So if you've got a, a database compute node, that's been the primary use case, and they'll have anywhere from you know from one to four drives um, as a kind of ordinary level in there. Uh, we do have customers that then are putting it into the shared storage that is being addressed by multiple compute nodes, uh, and there now you've got eight, sixteen, or or more drives in that array. Uh, so it it really does kind of go uh, everywhere. And there's nothing stopping you, I suppose, technically from being qualified and included in a, in a you know, typical two-node storage SAN, right? There's nothing fancy there, or, or is that more challenging? Uh, well, the only, the only gap for a storage array at this point is the dual port. So I don't offer right. dual port today. Okay. Um, that is, is in the works for uh, later second half of this year. Although even the even the array guys, though honestly, a lot of them are disassociating their software from the array, so that, that they can go cloud defined, server defined, you know, and and go that route because the economics there, you know, if you're a Dell or HPE or somebody like that or Cisco you know, that has a, a vast server platform to continue to engineer hardware side is, I'm, I'm not sure that's going to continue a whole lot longer. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're definitely more focused there in the, uh, the, the server side. 
uh, as opposed to the storage, you know, the, the high-end storage array, that, that kind of falls into that, going back to the, the SNEA definitions, in a way that those are already computational storage arrays. They have, right. they have dedicated hardware and yep. software solutions to do not just uh, compression, but data dedupe and compaction and snapshotting and all these other functionality. Uh, and there would be some refactoring of software to leverage in-drive compression mm -hmm. um, for some of those arrays, for the, you know, the, the traditional ones. New players, uh, you know, we've, where they're trying to use DPUs as the, the primary processor for an array, well, yeah, now the, the compression in-drive becomes pretty important because they don't have these other dedicated hardware um, pieces to do that, those functions. Well, right. You know, we uh, the the big one, Fungible, who we know pretty well, and they recently uh, were acquired. Um, they could make do some pretty creative things, and and some of the other guys that are that are DPU based. Um, you know, Vast is doing that. There's there are others that are looking at some of these technologies that uh, uh, that can layer, I suppose, and and and, and make for a uh, an interesting conversation there. Yeah, and it's still, it always comes back to, well, how do you want to uh, allocate your compute cycles and where do you want to put them to make your right. system the most efficient, the most performant um, overall? So. so how is going to the ASIC, uh, I mean, I understand that's the, the progression, right? As everyone starts with an FPGA and the holy grail is to hopefully have enough money to make it to an ASIC because at that point uh, you've got you've got exactly what you want, but but still tunable, right? And if you need uh, to a certain extent. So what has that done for you guys in terms of uh, the growth of the company or applications you can support or, or what are the other impacts? Sure. I mean, I think the, the biggest thing with going to an ASIC uh, is that it, it allows the, the product to be have a much richer feature set. Uh, with an FPGA, you know, we were we were still in a U.2 form factor with the FPGA, so that restricted us to you know, a relatively smaller FPGA to stay within the power envelope and the space envelope of a U.2. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, in the prior generations, that prevented us from doing things like adding encryption into the, the drive. Mm. Um, and then as you try to ramp up to PCIe Gen 4, Gen 5 speeds, there's just not enough gates in an FPGA that will fit within the the power envelope of U.2 or as we move into the E1S uh, and enabling that, you just can't get an FPGA that's small enough physically um, with enough gates to, to do something interesting. Huh. Well, that's interesting. I was going to let you off the hook on form factors, but since you brought it up, <laughs> Gen, Gen 5, obviously, uh, with Intel's official launch this week, although it's been... Sapphire has been out there for, for many weeks uh, in, in Genoa not, not uh, so long ago. That opens up some interesting things for Gen 5, but now we're seeing all the servers, well, we're seeing two things. The hyperscale servers going E1S primarily, although they, they may still use some, some E3 as well. Uh, all the big enterprise guys are going E3S though on the uh, server side. And most of those designs are seven mil. I mean, that's less than half of the thickness of, of the current U.2 or U.3 drive. Can you fit into a seven mil form factor? And, and how does that, I mean, that, is that a harder challenge 
for an ASIC versus a standard SSD controller? I'm uh, well, curious so, about that. Well, you know, just to be clear, our, our, our ASIC is similar size, similar overall to a standard SSD controller. Okay. Um, and as we go, we move into our Gen 5, then we'll do a process shrink and, um, and we will shrink our, uh, you know, the, the package as well. Our current chip, the, the 3000 series chip, we actually can fit into the E1S form factor. Um, okay. We have not delivered that to the market yet. Uh, we focused on, you know, as a startup, I, I got to try to keep my, my number of SKUs uh, limited until I've got significant pulls. So uh, we focused on, on the highest volume uh, SKU or form factor right now, the U.2. Well, I, yeah, I mean, slot-wise, you know, even OCP will concede that despite all the EDSFFF uh, excitement that U.2 for the for uh, at least through this year, and I would guess probably kind of deep into next year is is still the the predominant form factor. But I mean, E1S you know, really uh, opens up a lot of hyperscaler conversations, and you know, we don't really need to, to go there today, but I guess the cloud guys can also benefit from this, maybe even more so with full control over their own stack, should they choose to embrace a product like this, right? Right, right. Yeah, there's a, there is a lot of potential there in um, portions of their environment. Yeah. Uh, portions of their environment, data comes encrypted and compressed before they see it. And and there you you can't do a lot there. Um, so the the big question I think then is if we're thinking about this as an SSD as a seven point six eight terabyte or a four terabyte class or whatever it is, um, I see the benefit to the capacity argument. So so I'm getting more theoretically uh, capacity, uh, good performance profile. You don't have to talk hard numbers, but Generally speaking, if I were to compare this cost-wise to other 768s in the in the industry, I assume you're a little more. I have no idea, so I'm, I'm just a little curious as to to what the pricing looks like. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I don't want to talk any absolute pricing. No, no, I understood. No, Buy more, it'll daily. cost less, um, right? But yeah, I mean, we're look, we're we're aiming uh, the the performance of the drive, even when you're not using the extended capacity. Um, you know, we're seeing that. We're at the at the upper end. Uh, you know, we're aiming at that performance segment, okay. not the uh, the lower end. Uh, I don't know what, the, what do you want to call it? entry or, or lower low end data center segment. We've aimed at the, this is a, a premium performance drive. So we are aiming to be price competitive with the other drives up in that uh, you know in that swim lane as we call okay. it. And then when you want to use the the extended capacity, uh, then you're going to buy the CSD. You know, if you're if you're not going to use extended capacity, we have the NSD SKU, which doesn't offer the stand, the capacity expansion. Uh, but the CSD now, yeah, I'm going to charge a, a 25, 30 percent premium over those other drives because the reason you're going to buy it is because you're going to take it and use it as twice its capacity. Mm -hmm. So, on a raw capacity, sure, it's a little more price expensive, but it actually is costing you 30, 40 percent less. Than buying, say, a 16 terabyte drive um, versus our 8 terabyte drive, or arguably more, because you're just talking about the hard cost of the drive. But now you've got uh, fewer slots, conceivably less power in aggregate, and all of these things, uh, fewer rack you. I mean, this is a big push in the U.S. for sure, but in Europe, I mean, where where energy expenses are, are going through the roof. If you can take your footprint, even a small data center. 
you know, down a couple rack you and, and down many watts, it's a, uh, it's an enormous savings. Yeah. yeah and that, I mean, it, we are, you know, we're doing a lot of, of testing and work in, in different system level environments uh, to, to truly highlight those benefits in terms of not just um, raw capacity efficiency, but that system level efficiency, uh, reducing the, the overall power that it takes you to achieve a certain workload and deliver um, a certain amount of work back to your application owners. Yeah. So let's th let's think about this a little bit more too. From getting started with your drive, if you th if you sample one out to a, a prospect or a customer and they want to play around with it, how do you help them visualize or come up with a test plan to to see like? I don't know, do I just drag a folder of files over that was that was 100 gig or 100 terabytes or whatever it is, and now you know, I can look at the drive utilization. How do you, how do you get them to, sh to, to see that, to understand the, uh, the, the benefits there? Yeah, I mean, it varies a little bit, but uh, you know, typically users will start off with something simple like, like FIO or, or as you, you guys do yeah. with, with VD Bench. And uh, there are settings, and we have scripts that we can provide out for FIO. Um, for people to see different levels of compression uh, and what that does to the performance profile. And then it's just a, a query into the, uh, the smart attributes in the drive that says, what, are, what was the host terabytes written and what's the NAND terabytes written to show you how much uh, capacity was, was, uh, was saved. Yeah, you probably need a little uh, a little widget for VROPS or something for the VMware people to have just that little pie chart that says, you know, you've you've done this much and this much has actually been been used on the drive. That that's a good idea. We'll do that. Um, what we have done, <laughs> by the way, what we have done is done integrations plugins for Nagios and Prometheus, which okay, are sure. two pretty common server management tools, uh, so that. What they can see on the pane there is the 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 remaining physical space instead of just the remaining logical space, because mm -hmm. every other drive out there, logical equals physical. Right. Uh, so we we've done that integration to enable people to make it easier for them to manage the uh, the that extra capacity. Hmm. Well, that's pretty cool. I mean, we've we've been working with you guys for a number of years through the generations of product and. Uh, uh, yeah, this current one is is pretty fun. So, what is the process if uh, you know someone listening to us today or or watching the uh, the pod, if they want to check out uh, the company ScaleFlux, learn more about the drives? What what do they do? Uh, you can just we have www.scaleflux.com, uh, and right from there you can hit the contact us button and request a POC, um, or if it's you want to just go directly, just type in, send an email to info at scaleflux.com. And uh, we're monitoring all of that actively and we will get a response back to you quickly. Yeah. And I would encourage, you know, anyone in the, uh, in the categories that we've discussed today that can take advantage of something like this to check it out because these guys really are one of the uh, most credible players in computational storage, even though we've you know, discounted that term a little bit. Uh, so many of the other products out there, either the companies have gone under or uh, they're so niche that it's, it's really hard to understand how to use them in a standard environment. For this to be able to just drop into uh, you know, a virtualized environment, VMware off and running, great. 
If it's a software-defined or a server-based uh, storage situation, great there too. So it's certainly worth checking out and understanding how this kind of technology can impact those workloads. Very well said. I appreciate it. <laughs> Good. Thanks for uh, doing this, JB. Look forward to seeing you again soon, buddy. All right. Thanks, Brian.